Well, it's good to be here today with all of you. I'm excited to be here. Pastor Jason, thank you, thank you, thank you for the opportunity to come visit your church. Friendship Church, hey, you guys, that is what you live up to every day of your life. Jesus was a friend to the sinner. He cared about them. And I know as a church, you do too. Hey, it's our first time together, so let me just take a few minutes to introduce someone to you that's traveled with me for 30 years. She and her husband have been part of my ministry for all that time, and all of those years, I've never, ever regretted bringing them in. She's a great minister of the gospel, but a great vocalist as well. And I wanted her to sing a song for you to kind of set up what I want to share with you today. Kathy Wampler is an ordained minister. She is a classy lady. You're going to enjoy this, but I want to preface it by telling you, in America, we have our national anthem. We cover our heart. We salute whatever. We have anthems for organizations or purpose reminding. You don't just sing an anthem. You sing words to an anthem that have some kind of history to it. Well, they're anthems of the church. For instance, you have the anthem of How Great Thou Art and I Sing the Mighty Power of God. You can see why I don't sing. But there's another anthem that has forever stuck in my heart over all the years of being in ministry, over 50 years and even as a child. And it poses for me a statement that I've turned into a question. Has it been well with your soul? It was written by a man, Horatio Spafford, who had lost his business to a fire. His son was killed. His three daughters and wife were on their way to Europe, and the ship sank, and the wife was a sole survivor of the family. She got to Europe and telegrammed him back these words, survived alone. There's something so lonely about just those words. How are you surviving? Are you surviving alone? Well, Friendship Church, if you're your first time here, Friendship Church has opened its arms to you. And in a day when there's so much confusion and so much stress and distress, you need to more than survive. You need to thrive. And this song will give you hope because no matter where our sins have been in the past, they were nailed to the cross. And Jesus is the Savior of the world. I'm asking Kathy to come at this time. It's a recording from a church I speak at regularly, and I thought you would enjoy hearing this. It was done live there, and I think it'll inspire you. Kathy Wampler singing, It Is Well With My Soul.
my sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought My sin not in part but the Thank you, Kathy. That was beautiful. And I also appreciate Horatio Spafford for writing it. You see what he did? He took that tragedy, that writing that song on the bow of that ship that took him out to where his family had died. He wrote that out of tragedy. I guess that song could have been written with the title Out of Tragedy. Because if you survive your tragedies in life and you have Christ, it's a tragedy turned triumph. So how's it been for you? 
Well, as I come to you this day, and I feel so blessed to be here, and again, Pastor Jason, thank you for the opportunity. I, I'm going to remind you that behind me are some of the monuments of my life, we'll call it that. One is the, uh, it's the authorization to be given and granted the Purple Heart for my injuries in the war in Vietnam. But the flags stand for something to me. The great state of Texas, awesome. I love it. We're, we're always an independent nation, the great nation of Texas. That's the way we think. But the great nation of America, the United States of America, right now being pierced through the heart, right now struggling, right now trying to find its way in this dark tunnel of COVID virus, is it well with your soul? And I want to deal with that question because these monuments are exactly that. They're monuments. Monuments are erected to remind us. These are moments in our lives. It's kind of like driving down the highway and you see that little cross over there. Not long ago, we passed through an intersection, had a large cross, a slightly smaller one, and then three more crosses condescending in size. All Five of the family were killed at that intersection. So what does that monument say? Those crosses are saying, beware, this is a dangerous intersection. That's part of it. What's the other thing it's saying? It's saying, please don't forget us. Don't forget that at this intersection, five people who loved life, five people who loved each other, five people who had a hope for the future are lost forever. will never have that hope. Well, we have markers in our lives and we look back over those things and there's some things that we remember and some things we don't want to remember. Sometimes I don't like to remember where I've come from physically. I'm going to give you a little history on it to start with. I was born and my mother almost died at my birth. In fact, it was so devastating to her. I was raised by a Mexican nanny named Maria Rubio. She was from Matamoros, Mexico. My first language was Spanish. I spoke Spanish before I did English. And when I got to the first grade at six years old, they told me, you are not a Mexican. That broke my Hispanic heart. How in the world? I'm not a Mexican. I thought I was a Mexican. I had to learn English, go to school. Broke my heart, as I said. And they told me later that I cried for six weeks. I remember crying, but I don't remember that long. The rest of the story is, throughout my life, I've had very, very dynamic changes changes from what I thought I was to what I would become. And I'm going to tell you now, change is okay. Don't fear change. I love change. Uh, I guess if I was a little baby, I'd love change too, because change gets rid of the old and brings on the new. And so I can tell you that being changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye is going to be the best change we'll ever have. But I was changed at Calvary. That happened when I was five years old, to be honest with you, but I didn't understand it. But I remember praying a sinner's prayer at five. And at 16 years old, 11 years later, I got it right. I figured it out, and I gave my heart to Christ in that. It, it's really the same prayer, but it was with more understanding. And 16 was a great year. It was the year I met Brenda. Yep, that's my sweetheart. Brenda was, well, I'll put it, I was 16 when I asked her to marry me. I know some of you are saying, what? She was 13 when she slapped me, too. And I'm saying that was not the best time to ask to be married. She, I told her, I said, I love you. She said, I'm only 13 years old. I said, but I, you have the body of a 14-year-old. <laughs> she slapped me again, a little TMI there, too much information. 
She said, if you love me, you'll wait for me. And so I said, I love you. I, I'll wait till I'll wait till 10 o'clock to pick you up. No, I knew what she meant. Now, get get right. Are you, do you have seatbelts in those pews? It's a fair question because what I'm going to say is going to blow some of you away. When we married, I waited for her. She was still virgin and so was I. And it's okay to say that because if there's any young people that need to hear that right now, you listen up. Don't sell out your virginity under pressure to some guy. You date him, sweetie, take your Bible. Make him crawl over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to get to you. Put that Bible right between you. It's okay to wait. Guys, it's just as important to God to have your virginity as hers. So we did, and I'm telling you, Today, I speak in public schools all over the world, literally, in foreign countries, but mainly in America. And when I tell those kids the story I've just told you, no one covers their mouth and gasps and, oh, he used that word virginity. Girls stand and cheer. <laughs> Boys don't. They kind of salute in an unusual way. We'll leave it at that. But I'm telling you, who is going to hear the truth if we don't tell them the truth? And the truth is, we married at a very young age but it has lasted 53 years, 53 years. And it was put to the test because when she graduated, we got married and went to Bible college. And in Bible college, my grades weren't the best and I got drafted. Yep, they told me that I was going to go in the United States Army and they were going to ship me to Vietnam. I didn't know what Vietnam was. I'd heard it and seen little things on the news. All I saw was jungles and smoke and bullet and dead body. But I didn't want to go to Vietnam. So while I took my physical with the Army, which is the only physical I passed that whole semester, it's the only exam I passed that whole semester, they told me I was going to go to Vietnam. I didn't go back to be sworn in. Don't think I don't. I know some of you are thinking I was a war protester. No, I wasn't. That was only a two-year Commitment, if you want to call it that, to be drafted. I went out and joined the Navy. Four-year commitment. Yeah, because I didn't want anybody hurting me in the Army. What are they going to do? They can't hurt you. You can't, you can't hurt a man in the jungle if he's on a, a flat top out there, aircraft carrier. So I joined the Navy. I've never been in a fight. I never had a black eye as a kid. And they're going to put me in a jungle to shoot at people and people shoot at me. I don't think so. So I doubled my commitment to make up for my chicken heart. <laughs> really, I don't think it was so much chicken. I just didn't know how to respond to the fact that I would have a gun in my hand and hurt somebody. Well, I joined the Navy my second day in boot camp. They told me I was going to Vietnam. I was stunned. I said, why? They said, your leadership material. I said, why? They said, you went to college. I said, my grades were below zero. Well, it was the Navy. They were below they're actually below, below sea level. And I, they said, your leadership material. And I thought, Lord, we're going to lose this war. And so I'm going to tell you, I went into this thing blind. I came out of it mutilated. They put me in the Navy into a group called SWIC, Special Warfare Command. Special Warfare Command in the Navy includes the U.S. Navy SEALs. It includes the Special Dive Vehicle Teams. And it included what's then called the Brownwater Black Braid, but today it's called Special Boat Teams, Special Boat Units. And they have the highest KIA in the Navy. I mean, it's, it's drastic. And during the war, the highest KIA per capita in the war. And you can't prove it because 
whenever they don't retrieve a body and on our little fiberglass boats, when we were hit, the boats went down, the bodies went down with them. If they don't retrieve a body, you're not killed in action. You're missing in action until they get a body or a body part. Not good, huh? Now, what is a preacher's kid doing at a time like that in war in the worst of the worst of all the units I could have been in? You know, it brings up several questions. One, is God the master of our destiny? Well, I'll tell you this. He is the object of my destination. I'm not going to heaven because the streets of gold. I don't care if they're asphalt. I'm not going to heaven for pearly gates. All that. I think he made gates out of pearl and streets out of gold to mock us in our lust for wealth. So those things aren't why I'm going to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven to see Jesus face to face. That, that's why I want, to, I want to go to heaven to see God. But I'm also going to tell you, if I'm going to go, I want to be for a good cause. I want to be for a reason. So I chose to go to Vietnam with U.S. Navy Special Forces. And on July the 26th, after being there for eight months, unscathed, unscratched, not a thing happened to me. On, I'll back up three days. On July the 23rd, I took my first injury. It was relatively minor, but it kept me off the river for three days. And on the 26th of July, I was back on that river, back on that little fiberglass riverboat. I was standing between two 50 caliber machine guns, firing 550 rounds a minute each. So I'm putting out 1,100 rounds a minute of the most powerful weapon that could be placed on that boat and not sink it. Eight mile range on, on both guns. And I'm telling you, the enemy feared us. We were known as a fort looking for a fight. And here I am, a preacher's kid out there pushing a little red button on a handle that fire those guns and make me go half deaf for the rest of my life. And I'm telling you today, I got it. I got hit. God didn't do it to me. And it was in a way that you would never believe. After I was back on the river, three days off for the first injury, back on that river, I was back to where I was injured, beached the boat. I was standing in the gun tub and I picked up a white phosphorus hand grenade. It burns at an estimated 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, I'm told. I pulled the pin, I drew back the throw. I was gonna burn down some high brush, detonate booby traps, put up smoke give myself a little cover because I needed to get in that bunker. And if those Viet Cong were down there and I needed to get them out alive, I pulled the pin, I drew back. I did not know in the crosshairs of a sniper across that river, he had me right where he wanted me. Shooting at my head, I think, and when I drew back, my hand got in the way. He fired off one round and the bullet hit my hand. It went through the hand, through that meaty part between your index finger and thumb and hit the grenade and it blew right here. Those of you in the audience that have been down, down range, you know what I'm talking about. You know I'm telling you that there's no way to live through that. You don't live through that. It blew right here and my left hand was elevated, blew the thumb off in this part of my hand. They repaired it with a piece of my bone out of my hip. It took the fingerprints off these fingers and it burned this arm and then set me on fire from the waist up. I went half, half my skin was blown off my body. Went blind in the eye, deaf in the ear. Blew my hair off. I got my hair back. <laughs> I bought it. <laughs> I don't mind it. I just hate chasing it across church parking lots on windy Sundays. I had a dog bring it back once. Yeah, I know you're laughing, but that's all right, because I'm going to tell you something. I wanted my hair back. You don't want to see what's on top of my head. My ear was blown off. It's artificial. It fell off, and I was preaching in Jamaica one night. That's not a joke. That's the absolute truth. It was laying on my shoulder. Well, what do you do? I didn't know it fell off. I'm up there preaching away, and suddenly thousands of people are sucking air like a hoover, covered their mouth, their eyes are big. They're looking at me in total, complete 
a paw. I'm checking my fly because I don't know what's wrong. I look around and then I saw it. My ear was laying on my shoulder. You got to think quick because they're not breathing. Somebody's going to die. I grabbed my ear, dried the sweat and stuck it back on. <laughs> it got worse. They thought it was a miracle and they all got saved. And while we laugh at it, I want to tell you something. That would set the standard for my life. You'll see. I can talk about this stuff. It's not fun. I don't do it because I have fun doing it. I do it because for me, it's therapy. For me, it's healing. And I hope for you, and it's an example, that that day the devil lowered the boom. He lit the fuse, took his best shot, and he hit me and knocked me halfway into eternity. But I'm still here because no weapon formed against me can prosper. And greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And I'm more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. Yes, Kathy Wampler, it is well with my soul. It is. So how's it with your soul? I'm not here today, even in this electronic way, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to challenge you and to ask you to let God do in your life what he's done in mine. He turned those horrible wounds into scars. And what is a scar? It's evidence you got healed. Secondly, it's evidence you got over it. It's evidence of empathy. So if it's evidence you got hurt and healed, evidence that you're over it, you're dealing with it, and evidence of empathy to say to somebody who got hurt like you did, has a scar and a burn or an injury or a wound like you had, and has no hope, you're their hope. And you can say to them, I know how you feel, and you've got a scar to prove that. And then they say, how did you make it? And you can tell them the story of Jesus. You know, you know, I don't have to tell you that. You know that. That's why they call you a friendship church, isn't it? Be a friend to someone who does not have a friend. Well, the grenade exploded. I jumped in the water. Phosphorus burns in water. Ask any military man in this audience. I'm telling you the 100% truth. I burned in the water like I was in the atmosphere of air instead of fluid, liquid. And when I surfaced, I inhaled and I sucked that fire right down into my bronchial, my bronchial tubes. I coughed out a huge ball of fire with these words, God, whew, I still believe in you. It's an exact quote, and it was witnessed by every man on my boat and those on the cover boat. A total of four men on the other boat and three men on my boat heard what I said that day. I knew it. God knew it. So why did I say it? Because I wanted those guys to know I knew God didn't do it. Look at me. God does not do evil. He didn't kill your grandma. She was old. She wanted to go be with Jesus. Let her die and be happy. Don't be blaming God. God doesn't do evil. I had a guy look at me one day and he said, what happened to your face? I looked at him and said, what happened to your mother? You're uglier than I am. Good grief. He was born. The doctor slapped her. So I'm telling you, no matter what circumstance you're in, find the joy of the Lord in it. Find the happiness. The husband to the lady who sings named Dave Wampler, and he's my friend. He doesn't talk a whole lot about stuff, but when he speaks, you better listen. E.F. Hutton listens when he talks. And he said to me one day, Dave, no matter what happens in your life, you've already learned the lesson. Don't lose your joy. You cannot imagine the times I've heard that voice over and over again. Another voice I heard was actually written, but it spoke to me like a voice. It was from my favorite, one of my very favorite pastor friends, Hardy Allen out in California. At that time, pastoring Concord, California. 
Trinity Church. And he looked at me one day and he, he wrote this down, handed me this note. And he said, in the note, he said, you've run well, Dave. Finish well. That's what I'm trying to do. Right now, I'm running a race. And I can see the finish line, but until I cross the finish line, you don't get to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that does have a little bit of an issue with me because when you're burned third degree like I am, you don't want to be called well done. <laughs> You'll settle for, okay, uh, medium, come on down. Well, listen to this because this is from Dave Reaver. I didn't get here by myself. I can't do this on my own. If it hadn't been for Brenda, and you're about to see why I say it, I wouldn't be here. But if it hadn't been for God, she wouldn't have been there to get me here. When that grenade exploded, I jumped in the water, swam across the river, crawled up on the bank of the river. I saw the damage. I'm pumping blood out of an open artery. These three fingers were hanging by tendons. This thumb was hanging by tendons. I got my preaching finger. It's the only one that works. These don't work, but God saved me. Saved my preaching finger for right now. My thumb gone. I don't hitchhike. You can see that, especially in England. <laughs> this is the left hand. You try that in America, and they take you back where you came from. So why am I being silly? Because I can laugh in the face of the devil. He thought he got me. He thought he had me there. He thought that about Jesus. He got him in the tomb, sealed it up forever. Jesus will never come out of there. But on the third day, he came out. See, Friday is tough, but Sunday's coming. And I'm telling you, the best part of this story is about to be told. Yeah, they put me on a helicopter that day off the bank of that river. It's called a dust off. And as the helicopter took me away, I remembered very little about that moment. But this I'll never forget. When the helicopter landed, I was on my knees, I said, and I saw the damage. I fell over. They thought I was dead. And they put me in the helicopter thinking I'm dead. But Sunday's coming. Before I, we were maybe 1,500 feet in the air, that's a guess. The pain that I've not talked about because I didn't feel anything. I was burned, but did not feel a single pain. Not one pain until when it hit, it all came at once. And I let out a yell. I yelled, medic, in the helicopter. It scared him so bad. He almost jumped out of the helicopter. Oh, my word. It's a miracle he didn't. The pilot lost control for a moment. We're dropping like a rock, and I thought, good Lord, we're going to crash, and I'll be the only survivor. They got me to Saigon, and very stupidly and very wrongly, the pain that never went away for all that trip, and then the trip to Saigon, and then the trip to Japan, and then the trip to America, and then in America for the year and two months, even to this day, so often the pain, the pain that's there. If you've been burned, you know what I'm talking about. It was so intense. One day in the hospital in Japan, they brought a mirror and let me look at what I was looking like with no face. And the pain went from physical to emotional because I knew that no teenage girl in the face of yours could love a freak and a monster like me. And they walked away that day and the, the war of attrition was won by Satan. All that time I was hanging in there. I was quoting scriptures in my brain, remembering what I learned as a child. But when I looked in that mirror for the first time, I lost hope. You see, hope is the difference. It's the one line of defense between you and suicide. And I lost it. I knew she could never love me. And I didn't want her to ever see what I saw in that mirror. So I knew they wouldn't open a casket if I did live to go home. They had already taken my last will and testament. And I figured, you know what? If I kill myself, she'll never see what's left. They walked away and I didn't have a gun or knife or 
how do you kill yourself when you're in the hospital? Well, I pulled the tube out. I laid my head back and I waited to die. And I got hungry. I did. I pulled the wrong tube. Good grief. I can't even kill myself right. I just, I just pulled out lunch. And that wasn't my life dripping on the floor. That was my lunch. But God had a plan for my life. And even in my confusion and the darkness I stared into, that, that day, that darkness stared back into me. Did you hear what I said? Don't stare in the darkness too long. Don't stare at all. Because if you look too long, it looks back. And that's when your hope's gone. But I'm glad I pulled the wrong tube. Oh, the doctors chewed me out. You cannot imagine. They even called me names I hadn't heard the Navy call me. They were so mad at me. But I'm glad I pulled the wrong tube or I wouldn't be with Friendship Church today. Pastor Jason, I wouldn't be here with you, even if it's by video. We are one. We are in this together, the world says. We've been in this together since we gave our heart to Christ. That had nothing to do with a virus that had everything to do with a sin that was forgiven and it's well with our soul. Well, they sent me to America. Brook Army Medical Center, I was there for a year and two months. During that year and two months, they pulled the sheet over me twice. They thought I died, but I didn't see lights at the end of the tunnel and I didn't die in my understanding. And I didn't see Jesus and no welcome home. It was just, I woke up from what I thought was surgery and they said it was, it was over for me. But you know what? It's not over till the fat lady sings or the fat man sings. And I'm going to go into a song here in about half a minute because I'm telling you, it's not over till Jesus says it's over and calls us home. So with that, I'm going to bring you to my closing. They landed me in America. It was cool. Put me on a helicopter from the Air Force Base, flew me over to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio for a year and two months. But that first day, they put me in a tank called the Hubble Tank. It was there they started peeling skin off me, dead skin. They don't do it all at one time. It'd kill you. go insane. The pain is worse than the burn that puts you there. Day after day after day, that skin had to be taken off because it was rotting and it, you'd get gangrene and it'll kill you. So what I'm, I'm doing, I'm laying in this tank and they're pulling skin off me and I think, dear God, they're trying to kill me. I reached up and I grabbed one of the nurses by her and flipped her clear into that tank with me and I was trying to drown her in that water. They got her out. She was safe. There were six of them, and they were all right. They weren't social distancing. They were right there on top of me. She was fine. But when they got her out of the tank now, she's in her white uniform that's now pink with diluted blood from my body. Her hair's got my skin in it. She wipes her face, cleans her hands, goes right back to work on me. <laughs> that's commitment. They pulled me out and got me on a gurney, and on the way back to where they would on the way to where I hadn't been there yet, but on the way back to where they knew they had to take me. It was to a ICU intensive care unit. And on the way, the, on the way, the medic said to me, he said, tomorrow morning at 830, we're going to do this again. And I, I was in so much pain. I looked up at him off that gurney. I said, not you, not the entire United States Army is big enough to put me back in that tank. You're never going to hurt me like that again. He said, okay, okay. He had heard all that bravado before. Okay, all right. But you'll die. You know you'll die. And I didn't want to hear that either. So I looked at him. I said, well, let's negotiate this. I said, if you're going to do this to me again tomorrow, don't tell me. He said, what's the difference? I said, now I'm going to lay awake all night knowing at 830 in the morning, hell is coming to me on a blue draped gurney. 
That old gurney had a wobbly wheel, and it sounded like a Walmart shopping cart, and it had me ticked off, and now I'm going to hear it coming down the gurney, down, that gurney coming down the corridor the next morning. Well, I was right. I didn't sleep all night. They get there, and they get on each end of the sheet on my bed, and they, they have the gurney pull it, and they, one, two, three, and they drop me. Yes, I fell right between the sheets, uh, between the gurneys, and the guy on the blue end of the sheets dropped me. I went right down. I'm at a 45-degree angle. My little wings, I call them, are out, and the gurney is slowly rolling away. They forgot to lock the wheels. I'm just about to hit the deck, and that's going to leave a mark, and all I need is another mark. And a man stepped up, six foot five, six foot six or seven, huge guy, 350 pounds and nothing but muscle, no fat. I mean, this guy was amazing. He moved cannonballs, popped up on his chest, his shoulders, his arms. He was bald and he was black and his name was Rosie. Yes, honest to God, I'm not lying, I'm not exaggerating, his name was Rosie. He pushed everybody aside. I'd never seen this guy. Reached down and caught me before I fell all the way to the floor. Half of me's down. So he grabs me up and holds me against his giant chest and turns. And instead of putting me on the gurney, he walked all the way down that long corridor into that room we called hell, into that place where they skin you alive, lowered me into that water into that Hubble tank. They started splashing and immediately they started cutting skin. I bow up and only my heels in the back of my head are touching my belly button, what's left of it, sticking straight up. I'm in pain, I'm in, I'm in violent pain and I'm grabbing for nurse's hair. And they said, he's had enough. And I said, yes, he has. No moss, no moss. They said, Rosie, and he came over and he picked me up out of that filthy water held me in his arms and turned, and he took a long walk down that corridor. And with every step he took, he said these words to me, you'll be fine, big man. You'll see, you'll be fine. You'll be fine, big man. Over and over, he said it for that long walk till he got me to my room. So they took me out of a room we called him and took me to a room where there were 13 of us we nicknamed Death Row because we were in that room together to die. They didn't want us dying on the main ward. It discouraged other other critical patients that were going to live. So what do I say? I say he took me out of the miry clay and placed me in a bed to stay. Rosie was carrying me and he lowered me into the bed and pulled those giant forklifts out, turned and faced me. I had a little piece of hair on the back side of my head that somehow survived and he stroked it with a mother's love. He looked me in the eyes and he said it one more time. You'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. I believed him. I believed him. Then he did something I've never let a man do. He bent down and kissed my forehead. He backed away, said it one more time. You'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. I got to jump 20 years ahead to a place called Oregon, the Air National Guard. I was the speaker for the 4th of July. 20,000 people. Boy, I was in heaven. I was having the time of my life, and I got through speaking, and the crowd dispersing, and a lady walks up very well-dressed, classy, little salt pepper hair, probably 10 years older than me, and she looked at me. She said, you're Dave, right? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, but that's your nickname, isn't it? I said, yeah. She said, it's David. I said, yes, ma'am. I'm thinking anybody would know that. She said, but it's not just David. That's your middle name. Your first name's Milton. I said, yes, ma'am. Not everybody would know that. She says, Milton David Reaver. She got it right. I said, yes, who are you? She looked at me and she said, 
I'm the nurse you pulled into the water. Oh, my word. I can't believe it was her. I, I, I said, I'm sorry. Have I ever apologized? She said, I'm not looking for an apology. She said, I just want to make sure it was you. I didn't recognize you with your clothes on. Now, that is not right. There's some, that, that's not right. We laughed till we were in tears. I'm going to tell you something. What happened that day next is what drives me to this day. I said, do you remember a guy named Rosie? She said, oh, my, I haven't thought of him in years. She said, yes, I remember. I said, what was his real name? She said, all I remember is the tattoo on his arm. It was Rosie. I remembered. Yes, that's him. I said, do you know where he is? She said, no. I said, do you know where he came from? She said, no. I said, do you know where where?" When he came to Brook Army Medical Center, she said, when you did. Now, I was afraid to ask the next question. I said, when did he leave? She said, when you left. My friends tell me it was an angel. I hope not. I want to be a man. He was on a mission, not an angel on assignment. You see, today, you, Friendship Church, you're not on an assignment. You're on a mission. Be a friend be a rosy to somebody in your community today, to someone in this church that's heartbroken. I would like to share this little video with you at this time. It's something that shows you where I go, what I do, and why I do it. And the most difficult thing I've ever been asked to do for my country, to bring home the dead who gave their lives for our freedom. I'll be right back.
Prison Tower, good afternoon. Angel Flight Bravo 03. Gear down, five miles. We have a hero on board tonight. Angel Flight Bravo 02, you are number one for landing. Welcome home. Well, that's the angel flight, and all of us one day, all of us will be on that angel flight. My question to you is, that angel flight will take you home, but do you have a ticket to get on the angel flight? And the day that that ticket's punched and they put you on that angel flight, are you going to look back and regret the way you lived, who you were, what you could have been, who you could have been? Don't live your life in the past with regrets. Let that angel flight bring you home to glory to a hero's celebration. But I got to tell you, it's a hard thing for me to remember because for those trips that I looked over, those what we call caskets, they were called transfer cases draped with American flags. I wondered in that case, in that transfer case, was there the doctor that could have cured AIDS, cured cancer? Is there a is there a nun or a woman that could do what Mother Teresa did, now lost forever because they gave themselves for us and our freedom? Well, let me tell you something. That angel flight is in vogue with someone who took his flight too, and his name is Jesus. And the question was asked, why are you disciples standing here looking up in the sky wondering? He said, the manner he's going up is the same way he's coming back. And those of us that may go on the angel flight or may take flight without going through the grave, I don't want to look back and wish I'd done it different. I want to look back if I even look back and say, I didn't do it my way. I did it God's way. So if right now I could encourage you, join me in a simple prayer. Let's do it this way. Those of us who know Christ and we're walking in a current fellowship with Jesus, a friendship divine, if you would pray this, let's call it renewal of our vows together. But those of you who want to pray this prayer as making your vows, now's the perfect time to do it. Now it's exactly the right time. I'm not asking you to come forward, bow your heads, raise your hands. None of that's required to come to Jesus. He just said, come to me. Those of you that are weary and heavy laden, he said, if you come to me, I won't cast you out. He said, believe on me and I'll not only save you, but your house. So now's the time. I'm going to lead this prayer. Pray it as your initial prayer of salvation or recommitment to Christ or those of us who are rededicating our vows. Here we go. Repeat after me. Are you ready? Lord Jesus, thank you for being in your house today. I came here to find you. And indeed, I have. Jesus, I've sinned. I'm the worst of sinners. I am unclean, unholy, unrighteous. And in your presence, that reality is compounded even more. But in your presence, I know that you are holy and you are righteous and you are without sin. 
So I ask you, remember the day you died for me, Jesus? Well, I'm remembering that day. I remember that you died for me. Come into my life. Wash away my sin. Make me clean. Make me righteous the way I was intended to be. Redeem me. Restore me to my original value in that garden through Adam. The first Adam is the way I want to be. I can't get there without going to the second Adam. Thank you, Jesus. I confess today I'm more than a believer. I'm a born-again believer. My sins are forgiven. I'm a new creation. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and it's your first time or you're returned back to your love, would you tell an usher or the pastor or the pastoral staff that's here today, tell Pastor Jason, get involved in church. The surest way to stay in right relation is three things, real simple. Read your Bible, pray, and go to church. Even if you have to social distance, Jesus said, come to me, and he didn't say, keep back six feet. When the devil sneaks up on you and he starts whispering in your ear, tell him, get back, devil, six feet. Get behind me. So with that said, I'd like to close by just telling you how much it's meant to me to have the opportunity to address you, even in this fashion. I will tell you too, honest to God, I felt like I was right there physically in your presence. That's because with God, time and distance and space is irrelative. You may social, social distance, but your spirits are united together. God bless you. I'm Dave Reaver till I get to see you again.